Many that live deserve death. Some that die deserve life. Can you give it to them, Frodo? Do not be too eager to deal out death and judgment. Even the very wise cannot see all ends. Hello and welcome to Watch Party Lord of the Rings, where we look at Tolkien through the lens of adaptation. I am joined once again by an empty chair. Jen Gallagher usually joins me, but she's not here because she's off taking care of her baby, which is far more important than Tolkien. I know, sacrilege, but uh, that's the stance we take here. So to make up for it, we've been inviting on some excellent guests, and none more excellent than today's guest, Will Smith, better known online as Varking Runesong, a.k.a. Gimli's Beard, a.k.a. the corpse dwarf uh, by Balin's tomb. Yeah, it's... (laughs) It's a yeah, that's a sad that's a very sad scene that you're bringing up right at the jump of this recording, and I don't know if you're trying to be offensive or not, so I'm gonna let the first one slide. But yes, folks, it's good to you know be here. It's fun to be on you know different platforms, different streaming services, and all that. And you know we we had you on on Fellowship of Fans not too yes. long ago talking about orc rumors, tons of fun, and and then magically this week, Amazon put out a bunch of orc images for people to see that I think a lot of people enjoyed. And uh, I, I think there may be some creatures coming up in, in what we're about to witness. Yeah, it's been a very exciting 24 hours in the Rings of Power world. And you spent a lot of time in the Rings of Power world. You started and you're the admin for the basically the Rings of Power uh, subreddit on Reddit. Uh, and yep. you have you have your own podcast, That Varking Podcast, which is devoted to pretty much all things of interest to the Dwarven communities. If it's Dwarven, I am interested. Yes. But we're going to give you a little bit of a break from the Rings of Power today because we're doing another one of our deep dives into the Tolkien, not the Tolkien, uh, the Jackson films, and we're entering the Mines of Moria. So I thought there's no one better to join us as we enter the Mines of Moria, uh, you know, that old Dwarven hovel, that old ugly... Uh, what? And it, it, it needs some refurbishment. It's, you know, no one's buying this. You go on Zillow, its value is zero. This thing is, is crap. You know, tell me if I'm wrong. Tell me if I'm wrong. That's what it looks like. Space, man. When you're when you're trying to come up with how much something is worth, you don't just look at the value of what it is today when they walk in. And, and no, you're not going to list like watcher in the water outside or anything like <laughs> that. But there, it's so much space, a lot of room, you know, a lot of opportunity to, you know, Maybe put in a desk here, a bed there. People love it. They dig it. And then, boom, I wouldn't even sell it. I would rent it out. And, oh, you'd make so much money. Beautiful area. It's got good bones, I guess you could say that. Good, got good bones. Oh, and, you man. Know, if you're trying to market it, you know, maybe you wouldn't mention watching the water, but you'd say built-in security, right? Uh, that Turn it into a positive. Yeah, don't go too deep. Stay out of the basement. <laughs> right, right, right. No digging. No digging, please. Just Airbnb it out. No, no, don't delve too deep. And maybe in the future, don't invite in, you know, I'm not trying to like pick on anybody, but don't, don't invite in like hobbits. They seem to be at like the cause of disaster for almost everything. The cause of and solution to every problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We'll be talking about, uh, so for our listeners, if you've been following along, this is the extended edition, one hour and 57 minutes. If you want to get really precise, 43 seconds is where we're starting. Uh, through about two hours, 13 minutes, and 24 seconds. So pretty much starting with when they get to Moria, Watcher in the Water, and ending uh, just before Pippin drops a certain corpse down a well. Um, So this is, you know, before all the 
flashy fighting scenes, but I, I think this is where we get all the really good, like, Moria history, and we get to talk about, you know, the, the ancient dwarven dwelling of khazad and you can really drop some knowledge on us and explain to me why this um, terrifying black chasm is actually a big, a big kingdom that we should care about. Um, so we'll, we'll get into all well, that. Well, it's dwarven, but we'll get to it. <laughs> I guess no further ex- explanation necessary is what you're saying. It's dwarven, so... <laughs> um, but so before we get into all that, I, I just want to take a couple seconds. You are obsessed with dwarves, or that is your your deal. You care more about dwarves than any of the other characters and peoples in the Legendarium. So I kind of wanted to peel that layer of the onion back a little bit and just sort of ask you, and I've never asked you this before, um, but sort of how you came to Tolkien and then specifically how you came to love dwarves so much. Well, I had originally come to Tolkien because my father, when I was very young, probably six or seven years old, he would like read bedtime stories. And we ran out of bedtime stories that were like the children's books. But he loved Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit and and all of that. So he decided one night to start like just every night. He would come to my room and for about 30 minutes, he would just start reading through it. And I thought it was awesome. But it was like when it ended, I kind of forgot about it. And then when I was in fourth or fifth grade, we had this program on our little terribly old computers at our school where if you did book reports on different books, they were each worth a certain amount of points. And if you went over a certain threshold, you got rewards, like little gold slips that we could take to the cafeteria and get an extra sandwich or extra slice of pizza or something. (laughs) And The Hobbit was on the list. And it was like worth way more points than everything else. So I didn't even have to like really read through it. But I did it because every chapter he took the quiz and then he got all the bonus points. So at the end of every semester, it was like the kids who were reading The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, we had more points than everybody. So our, our grades were better, but we started like cheating it. So one of us would read, you know, a chapter here or there. And like we would share notes about everything that happened <laughs> in those chapters so we could all run to the computers and fill out the quizzes at the same time and like have the rest of that school period kind of like off. And we didn't actually have to read anything. And then as far as like the whole Dwarven obsession, um, which everybody should have, they're mm-hmm. solid for. I, I just like the whole backstory of like Tolkien originally wrote them to sort of be bad guys. And then as he kind of explored Gimli, Legolas, that whole friendship, he decided to kind of rethink it, reopen it back up and take another look. And maybe we could do something different here with the dwarves. And then right. growing up, I played a tremendous amount of MMORPGs like World of Warcraft, um, EverQuest. And in those, it always seemed like the Dwarven races were less played. So sometimes the games would offer you bonuses for playing those characters to like kind of fill it up. And it was just like, you know, you'd talk Dwarvish a little bit here or there, or have like an accent or, you know, you pretend like you're Scottish for a hot minute online when you're 15 years old and fighting people in PvP. And... It just kind of stuck with me that everywhere you went and when the movies came out, everybody loved Legolas and Aragorn and they just like thought Gimli was the funny guy. And I could relate Uh to that growing up. A lot of people just thought I was like the funny guy, but really Gimli probably should have just been the star of the books, the movies, everything, (laughs) Dane, all all the dwarves. There's so many great ones throughout history, but it just became a thing of like, I I saw something that was maybe a little bit uh, more niche than everybody else. And I kind of just got attached to it because nobody else would like pick it. It was always me doing it. So you're just in it for the incentives. You're like, I can get an extra slice of pizza. All right. I guess I'll read this Hobbit thing. Yeah. 
And then when you're playing the game, they're like, you know, every kill is worth more experience points because you're playing something nobody else is playing. I was like, oh, easy mode. Let's do that, too. Yeah, I, I like the dwarves because they're easy, easier to like, easier to enjoy. Well, it's funny because, you know, in The Hobbit, the portrayal of the, of the dwarves is not exactly very flattering. They're kind of bumbling the entire time. They get a lot more serious and interesting in all the other materials, you know, Lord of the Rings and and even the Silmarillion, although it's not terribly it's not a very flattering depiction there either, but it's like unflattering in a different way. But I, I, I love the dwarves, but you know, their depiction in the Hobbit, they're just kind of almost like kind of useless. Like Bilbo, who should be the useless one by the end of it, he's the one who's like the only one who's got common sense and making like helpful suggestions. And the dwarves are basically useless by the end. Like they're the smart ones at the beginning, but then they're actually bumbling and then they're totally useless by the the, the Hobbit, Hobbit is not the greatest representation of the dwarves, no. But I, as you were pointing out, when you think about every other bit of text we have, like all the great battles, it was dwarves who equipped everybody with uh, armor. It's, you know, Narsil cuts mm-hmm. the finger and the ring comes free. Well, who who made that sword? Right. It was a dwarf who did it. Right. The, the doors of Durin. Dwarves helped do all those things. Um you know, there's a new video game coming out, and it's all dwarves in the fourth age. You don't see an elf game coming out, a hobbit game coming out, human. Dwarves are getting their time to shine right now. And uh, unfortunately, the hobbit, <laughs> not as good as the uh, original trilly, but, you know, I appreciate the amount that dwarves were in it. Well, and, and it kind of gets to one of the things that I like best about dwarves. We don't know a whole lot about them. And the reason for that is, the framing devices that Tolkien uses throughout, he, he has frame narratives for everything. So The Hobbit, is, in theory, is a, a story that was written by Bilbo. You know, we treat it as a true story and that Bilbo wasn't lying, but it is still written from his perspective. So you can think that maybe he's like, you know, adding a little bit of a flourish, a little bit of comedic element, playing up his qualities and, and making the, the dwarves look a little bit more bumbling. Maybe yep. not intentionally, but he, he's still the author, right? And so that's the framing there. And like the Silmarillion, these are all elvish legends. So the dwarves show up relatively little and half the time they're a source of conflict, right? And that's kind of the focus of the narrative. So I like, I always like to think, well, what if we were to get some sort of text from the dwarvish perspective, things would look a little bit different and there would be way more, way more information because yes, there are seven fathers of the dwarves, but really don't only know about Durin's line because they're the ones who are the most friendly to the elves. And I'm always like, what about the firebeards? You know, what about these other uh, lines of dwarves? What are they doing? Yeah, and it's like if if you wrote my history, you're not going to have all the details because you don't know everything and you haven't always been there for like my life, unfortunately, you know, (laughs) I I wish you were. But even things like how dwarf women appear, those are, was Gimli joking when he talked about, you know, how similar they were? Aragorn, was he joking? The rest of it comes from like the elves talking about it and how accurate are they going to be with like a, a lifelong rival of theirs, so to speak. You know, it's hard to really trust that that information that they provided is completely true and accurate because it's not the dwarves who are providing all those historical references and stories. Exactly. Getting into the historical references, since we have a real life dwarf here on the pod, I'm hoping you can uh, give us some insight that we can't find in the texts. Uh, but we'll just start with who is your favorite? Well, let's do first age and second age dwarves. And we got this. This is a request on. I, I I was like, I told people, got Varkin coming on. Give me your dwarven questions. And this is one that came in. First age dwarf, second age dwarf. Who are your favorites? Well, I like, I have three favorite dwarves, period. 
and it's for like lesser reasons really but i I like talcar um i i like narvi and i'm a massive fan of dane to me he's the greatest dwarf of all time even more so than the durins which i know would surprise many many people and there's been so many durins but to me, Dane was the man, and like again for a variety of reasons. But I, I like characters who are more of like enhancement characters. They don't play the lead role, but they're doing the things that allow the lead role to really succeed. They're building the armors. They're, you know, fathering these relationships with different races or different armies to make things go well. And like Dane does that too. I mean, in the movies, they show him coming in and just, I mean, really piecing up the elves in the Battle of Five Armies. Mm-hmm. But in, in truth, he, he did a lot to, like, where Thorin went wrong, Dane tried to make right. And he wanted people to have their fair share of the treasures and send people home with their gifts and try to right. rebuild those relationships so that the dwarves could thrive going forward after that. And I think there's a lot of nobility in that, that maybe some of those previous dwarves, um, they weren't really focused on that. Well, and they did Dane a little bit dirty in the Hobbit movies because mm-hmm. they they allowed Thorin to be the one who defeated Azog, whereas in the books, Dane killed Azog in the I can't even pronounce it Azul Nuzabar or however you say it. I, yeah, I always screw it up. Yeah, but it, Dane kills him, and yeah. so that, that's you know that's Dane's glory, not Thorin's. I don't know why they changed it. Maybe they just wanted to have like that like feel good moment for Thorin, who you were just with for three movies or whatever. Right. But... Yeah, that's it's one of those changes where if if Pete would have just talked to me about it, we would have made it right. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, mean, I truly am like a super fan of Dane. I got helmets, I've got <laughs> hammers, I've got uh, cards. All is that that helmet and the hammer? I mean, that's pretty heavy gear, right? That's that's not just cheap replica stuff. That's real replica stuff. Yeah. So. When I do streams with Fellowship of Fans, I'll, I can put the helmet on for a little bit, and then I default back to this uh-huh. because this will hurt my neck and my shoulders to keep on for too long. And that's why, like, you really need to be like dwarven thick to walk around with that. Uh-huh. And with the hammer that's right above me, um, same thing. I can have it next to me for a little bit, but it's like my hand starts getting shaky. People think it's the camera, but no, it's just my weak muscles <laughs> not being able to hold this thing because it weighs a gazillion pounds at all times. Uh-huh. So it's just safely up there. Got me a little Arkenstone. Oh, beautiful. You know, we just, we celebrate all dwarven things here. My girlfriend doesn't, but I do. I, You know, this is that's something that the collecting is something that I'm feeling more and more inclined to do. And I'm just resisting and resisting because I know my wife would not be pleased when I start filling up our, our house with a bunch of Mathams. We have an extra bedroom here that, like, family will come and stay over in and... I asked, can, is there any way I can just have like my little Lord of the Rings cave and just put all my nerd stuff in there? And she was like, well, where will everybody else stay? I was like, they can sleep in there. They would love they it. Have to, they got to stay away from the collectibles is all. Like I'll, I'll put like caution tape up on the stuff that needs to be protected. But she's like, no. She's like, you, you have your little cubby corner now if it doesn't fit in there. But what she doesn't know, I'm cleaning out the shed. And we're going to make that nice, and there's going to be a lot of stuff in there. Like a little mini museum I'm planning just to dwarves. I, I think you should keep pushing on the guest room, you know? Guests would love to sleep with, like, a prosthetic orc mask just staring at them. Like, who wouldn't want to wake up to that face? You know? That's, I'm, I'm going to have you talk to her after this, and I think we're going to make this work. 
Let's do it. I can, I can be very, very persuasive. Actually, I can't be very persuasive because I have the same problem. It's all I could do to get a recording room where, I, you know, a little corner where I can record. But uh, these are the challenges of the Tolkien fan. Yeah. Well, I think it's time to get into the, the Jackson movies. And uh, as always, we talk about the extended edition, but we'll also be, you know, pointing out the scenes that are only in extended and what's different with the theatrical um, and, you know, differences, similarities with the books and all of that. So. Let's uh, let's go ahead and delve into our first scene. After being defeated by Caradhras and Frodo deciding we will go through the mines, in this extended edition only scene, we cut to a wide shot of a constructed stone bridge protruding from the mountainside, an exterior shot of Moria. Gandalf pulls Frodo aside and tells him the ring's power is growing and that evil will be drawn to him from outside the fellowship and from within. You feel its power growing, don't you? I felt it too. You must be careful now. Evil will be drawn to you from outside the fellowship. And a fear from within. Frodo asks who he should trust, and Gandalf says Frodo should trust himself. Frodo asks what he means, and Gandalf says, There are many powers in this world for good or for evil. Some are greater than I am. And against some I have. So just to, to start, to rewind to the beginning of the scene, I, I kind of started, I laugh now when I see the start of the scene because Gandalf starts the conversation by going, oh, Frodo, come help an old man. Like, dude, no one's believing that you're just a decrepit old man anymore. Right. Like that, con, that con isn't working on anybody. The scene as a whole is one where, like, I relate well to Frodo for a moment. And then, like, it quickly dissipates. When when Gandalf is like, it's your choice. Where do you want to go? And he's like, I want to go to the mines. I'm like, me too, brother. I'm all in. Let's go. And then he quickly, like, he was assertive. Like, he didn't question it. He was like, that's what we're doing. And then right after that, he was kind of like, who, who do I trust? I don't, I don't trust. Like, I don't know what to do. Like, he, he quickly, like, loses that, like, oh, man, I was so ready to just back him. Let's go. Especially when you that shot opens up, and it kind of looks very, like, ominous. Like, it's very dark shot in general, and they're headed towards that. Gandalf pulls the old man trick to, like, get him close to ask him a question. Uh-huh. Um, but, yeah, like, right up front, I want to go to the mines. Real excited part. And at this point, you know, especially when I watched this as a kid, I wasn't aware of what they were walking into. But right. Yeah, I want to go to the mines. Well, I think that that uh, his uncertainty and not you know, being unsure about what to do, I think it's important that they show those types of scenes periodically and have multiple moments. And he does this. Jackson does this well, you know, throughout the fellowship. There are multiple times when Frodo has to make a choice, you know, so it's never at a very surface level. You might think, well, he, he's given this uh, task very early on and then he accepts it at the council and then that's it. You know, then he's under this uh, obligation to go all the way. And so we don't really think about the choices he's making throughout. Like, but in reality, he always has a choice to give up, you know, and he's constantly choosing again and again to push forward and push forward. And so I think that, you know, we'll see, this wasn't really one of those choice moments, but it's, it's, we're peering into the doubt that's in his mind. You know, the, the thinking that's going on, um, under the hood, you know, under Frodo's hood, so that when he makes those choices, um, like, for example, at the end of this film, when he decides to leave the fellowship and strike out on his own and, you know, Sam ultimately goes with him, that is a choice to continue on. Um, we understand the significance of that 
choice because of these little moments. And there's another one that we'll cover a little bit later in this episode uh, where he's talking to Gandalf and then they see Gollum, you know, uh, there's some great lines there, but where we really see the doubt and the fear that he's still experiencing. And yet he's, he's continuing to push forward. So I, I, I like that we get to see that with Frodo here. You know, this scene is a bit of a, it's a bit of a creation for the films. Um, We don't get this dialogue between Gandalf and Frodo, you know, not like this anyway, before they enter the minds of Moria. And I think what they're, I think the purpose of the scene is to foreshadow things to come in a really like obvious way. So like it, it foreshadows the watcher in the water, you know, the ring, will draw evil from without the fellowship. That's what Gandalf says. Okay, that's foreshadowing the watcher and water that's going to come in like, you know, two minutes. And, or from within. All right, that obviously foreshadows Boromir, which we saw the scene with Boromir on Caradress like two minutes earlier. So that one like is really kind of heavy handed. It's like, all right, we get it. Um, and, you know, someone walks by Gandalf when he says from within and we don't see who it is. But because we just saw the whole thing with Boromir like a couple minutes prior in the movie, I always assume like that's Boromir walking past. That's how I took it as well. I also think it's just at a base level. It, it it's that relatable moment where it, sometimes when things are difficult, even things that seem like easy choices to make, they're not. They're difficult to do, and it's hard to commit to them because you're not really confident in any one choice you make is going to be perfect. No matter what you're choosing, there's going to be a little bit of negative to go with it, and. You know, as you were talking about, Jackson does a great job in his movies of giving you enough material to where you can, like, really relate to these characters. And I joke about, you know, the Hobbits all the time, but it's everybody can kind of relate to what Frodo is going through there and how he's feeling and why he's not sure. Right, right. Now, I want to get your opinion because I'm always of I'm consistently of two minds about um, this thing thing I'm going to mention. So one of the beauties about. Tolkien is that when you're reading it, there are all these little nuggets that you do not appreciate and cannot appreciate really on the first reading. There's a reference, you know, that has a hidden meaning that you cannot possibly know until you get to the next chapter, the next book, you know, later on in the novel. Right. That's why it's so gratifying to reread the Lord of the Rings over and over again, because you always discover something new Um, because Tolkien doesn't because he created this fully fleshed out world. Um, he doesn't go out of his way to point out the things like he doesn't say, aha, see, I did this thing where there's like a history here and I'm telling you about it explicitly through this character and like make it super obvious. It's just there. And you kind of discover it in a very realistic way. Um, Jackson amps it up a little bit to 11 and like he makes all those little hidden nuggets and, you know, the implications, he makes them very explicit. You know, he makes all the subtext text. And so what I'm referencing here is when we get to the watch of the water scene in the book, you know, it just so happens that the watch in the water, when it strikes out, it grabs Frodo first. Okay. Of all the members of the fellowship, it grabs Frodo first. After the attack, Gandalf doesn't tell the fellowship his thoughts, but the narrator tells us what he's thinking, which is he's wondering, boy, it's interesting that the watch in the water grabbed Frodo first, implying heavily that there's some sort of relationship between the watch in the water and, and the ring, whether or not it's like just an evil creature that's drawn to this, this evil mm-hmm. device or... Maybe there's some motive. Maybe the Watcher is like allied with Sauron. You know, some people like to say that. I, I tend not to think so. I, I like to think it's just sort of an elemental thing, evil creature being drawn to evil. But there's that sort of hidden implication there. And Peter Jackson is inserting an entire scene to make that very explicit here in advance of the event happening. So it's, 
you know, Tolkien doesn't do a ton of uh, heavy-handed foreshadowing. He does foreshadowing, but it's not very heavy-handed. It's kind of hidden. Um, and Tolkien likes, uh, Jackson likes to make it a little more heavy-handed. And I'm always unsure about whether or not I like that or whether it bothers me. <laughs> I think it's probably a good thing just because of the medium. Um, it would be totally lost. Like, even if you rewatch the movies, if there wasn't this sort of more explicit reference to it, it would probably get lost on everybody. So I think I like it. But I- I'm here curious to hear your opinion. I am a fan of how Jackson does it. And I'm not like, you know, he, Peter Jackson does no wrong. It's I, I think that he, the way he plays it makes it where people from all over, no matter how many times they've read through, they, they kind of get that. Like I remember being younger and watching it in the movies for the first or second time. And like a buddy sitting next to me pointed out like, Oh, you know, of everybody, you know, why, why do they grab Frodo? And I, I think it's, you know, you could just assume, and, and when you read through the books over and over and over and over, like we do, it's, you can put that together and it, it makes sense from like an elemental standpoint that you can kind of like feel that, that negative energy coming from the ring. And maybe that is what makes the watcher be like, that's my guy right there. Let's go get him. Um, but there are people who haven't read the books over and over and they can put two and two together based on how Peter set that scene up mm-hmm. that, you know, that that's a perfect reason uh, to explain why he grabs Frodo out of everybody. It's kind of like when, if LeBron James walked in your house right now, the whole mood would change because he just has this <laughs> aura about him. That's like the ring when it's around people know they can kind of feel it too, even though they're not the ones carrying it. The watcher gets woken up because We'll get to it, but I, I think that that's sort of like the reasoning behind it is that it's like it's got like an elemental energy, kind of like how you put it. I really like that thought process on it of evil creature can kind of feel this evil lurking from over here, and now he wants to know what's going on. Yeah, I think more and more I'm inclined to think that I really do like that Jackson does it this way. One, I mean, even when I was watching the first time around, it made me trust him so much more. And I'm saying Jackson, but the whole Jackson team, because I'm I'm going, oh, ah, he got it. You know, he got it. He got this thing like he understands this thing and he's he's inserting it. He's including it. And that made me trust. All right. Jackson understands what's going on in these books, like at a very deep level. He's not just looking at like the very surface of the narrative action and the narrative plot points. He like gets what's happening and um, he's he's going out of his way to include it. And also it sets up dramatic tension in a way that's more meaningful, you know, you foreshadow pending danger it puts you on the edge of your seat a little bit more and it's different than Tolkien's narrative style there's suspense of a different kind but it's like discovered dispense dispense it's suspense that you discover after the narrative threads come together and then you like look back and realize the intricacies of everything that was happening Jackson and this is more the case in the two towers he puts all those narrative threads um together more chronologically so you experience the dramatic tension while you're watching it the first time you don't you know you don't have to piece it together and do like a book report to to get what's happening in this movie but as you kind of like the purpose of these videos is to view all this from the lens of adaptation it is like a perfect adaptation scene it doesn't need to be in there the way that it is but the way he's laid it out makes it makes sense to probably the most amount of people like it gives it away without really giving it away there's still a little bit of thought behind it of okay he grabbed frodo he could have grabbed anybody the fellowship probably still would have reacted the same way we need to go save whoever it is 
But when you have it set up this way, there's like those little extra hints that like kind of push you to going, man, Frodo of all people, the guy with the ring, it, he has to sense that energy coming from that ring a little bit. Right. And, you know, p- people talk about uh, why would you add new scenes or delete scenes, it, add new scenes, but then delete scenes that are actually in in the movie. But sometimes you have to do that to get the information in in an adaptation. So, like, if they were to try and do it exactly like the books, as I mentioned, the the whole information about um, Gandalf wondering whether or not the Watcher in the Water was drawn to the ring, that's his inner monologue. Like, he doesn't say it out loud. So how do you film that? You know, you 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 can't. You can't do it no. exactly like the book because you can't get the camera inside his head unless you're going to do a voiceover randomly, which would be terrible. For every time a character has, like, inner monologue, and it would take right. you out of it. You wouldn't right. feel like you're in Middle Earth anymore. You'd feel kind of like you're you're watching a play but not executed as, you know, greatly as one. Right. And so they, they create a new scene. Um, they kind of reorder it. They put it before the action rather than after, which I, I we just talked about and I think is fine. And it also accomplishes something else, which is you see Gandalf and Frodo together, like their closeness, how much Frodo trusts Gandalf. Um, and it is introducing a new concept, like the idea that Frodo maybe won't be able to trust anyone, um, which I don't know that that's ever like explicitly suggested in the, in the text of the books. But it works really well here because the finale of this film is Frodo leaving the Fellowship. And it's, you know, the same in the books because of Boromir's betrayal. Right. So, you know, Frodo needs to learn how to rely on himself and trust himself and stand on his own two feet. So putting this little nugget in here and there's you know other references throughout the film, they're sort of plucking that thread periodically um, to great dramatic effect. And it sort of reaches a crescendo when Boromir actually portrays Frodo. So I think it, even though I think it's probably good that it got cut just for pacing, um, it slows things down a little bit. It's insertion in the extended edition is very effective because it's, it's good for the book readers and it's still working on all the thematic threads that Jackson's trying to highlight throughout this film. It's the perfect extended edition type of scene. Exactly. Yeah. So let's get into the second scene. In this scene, Gimli gasps as he sees the walls of Moria. As the Fellowship walks along the wall, Gimli explains that dwarf doors are invisible when closed. Yes, Gimli, their own masters cannot find them if their secrets are forgotten. Why doesn't that surprise me? Like the good elf that he is, Legolas takes that opportunity to get in a dig at the dwarves. Frodo slips and steps into the lake of water bordering their path and looks on the water with unease. The moon peeks through the clouds and the outline of the door is revealed. It reads, the doors of Durin, Lord of Moria. Speak, friend, and enter. What do you suppose that means? Oh, it's quite simple. If you want a friend, you speak the password and the doors will open. Gandalf speaks a password, but nothing happens. He tries another, but again nothing. He pushes on the door in vain, as Pippin asks him, what are you going to do? What are you going to do then? Knock your head against these doors, Peregrine Took, and if that does not shatter them, and I am allowed a little peace from foolish questions, I will try to find the opening words. I enjoy this scene so much. I think <laughs> it's so funny. But I want to rewind it right to the beginning and talk about Gimli gasping when he sees the walls of Moria. And how excited he is. Yeah. Like, and, and the opening part of that scene... It, it cracks me up because you have both Gimli being like, 
it's Moria, like, and he's going to tell people about it and how much he knows and, and, you know, like, kind of, like, assert himself above the rest of the group. And then Gandalf gets to the door and he's, like, telling everybody, like, look at how much I know. Look at me. <laughs> and Gandalf both have that moment where, you know, they're kind of, like, at the front of it. Legolas gets to take that little dig at Gimli about the doors being hidden. And then Gandalf gets a dig from Pip because he couldn't open the door, even though he just, you know, he mansplained it for everybody. Right. And then he couldn't get it open himself. And so we were just talking on the previous scene about, you know, why the Watcher grabs Frodo. And as you pointed out, he is the one who slipped up a little bit and stepped in the water. And the only thing that gives me pause about the theory of like that elemental energy coming from the ring that makes the Watcher want it is that maybe he's after Frodo because Frodo was the one who stepped in the water ah. and woke him up from his little nap. But the the ring drawing him makes a lot more sense. But yeah, I, I absolutely love that little relationship that you're getting between Gimli and Legolas, the jokes that they can like that banter back and forth. But the the scene-stealing moment of this little bit we see is clearly the back and forth between Pip and Gandalf, where he's like, it's not open. What are you doing? What are you doing? Well, and it's funny because Pippin is never afraid to sort of needle Gandalf, and that's like a part of his personality. Even like going back to the the beginning of the Fellowship, like I'm thinking in the books, he's constantly needling Sam, you know, about his... Yep. The, you know his servant class stuff is asking him to like fetch water and fetch food and stuff which they took that out of out of the movies but it's very funny in the books and pippin pippin's just got this great like sense of humor and he's totally unafraid to use it on on gandalf even when gandalf is like getting kind of angry like the guy he shouldn't be doing it to right right of all the people he will do it to him yes right right this is an example just seeing gimli and it's well acted by John Rice Davis, but just say, oh, the walls of Moria, like he's speechless. He's so, so excited um, because there's more in the books uh, where, where Gimli's just going on and on. Like Gimli does spend a lot of time in the books kind of talking about um, and not not at this point. It's actually I, th- I think it's after they, they come out and he like sings a song or maybe he just speaks poetry about, you know, Kelizarum, um and asks Frodo to look on the pool. You know, this is where Durin you know, looked into the into the pool and saw the stars overhead. And that's where the you know emblem of Durin came in. And he goes on and on and has this beautiful poem and everything. And all that's of course stripped out for time. And I, th- I think sensibly so, but I-, I like to imagine that it's kind of all getting compressed into this one line for John Rice Davies, the walls of Moria, you know, and just the look on his face. I mean, you can, you can see, I mean, I obviously would have loved to hear and see all of that extra stuff. But I think it still comes across um, how significant this place is to Gimli as a dwarf. Yeah, and I think you're right about the compression aspect of it. Like, a movie can only be so long. And even Lord of the Rings, they're all very long movies to begin with, especially when you get into the extended editions. Even with that, there's still so much more they could have done, more story they could have Mm -hmm. told, more dialogue that was in the books that doesn't... And that's just the nature of the beast. It's going to be the same thing with the show but it's one of those things where it's like it's a nod to everybody Gimli is so excited you can tell he wants to talk more about Moria and everything that you know comes with it but he he can't because we we don't have 88 minutes for him to kind of talk through his feelings and hype everybody up for what they're about to walk into and you know I think in the next scene he'll continue to do that a little bit and kind of explain things but you could just tell he wants to talk to anybody right now about it like 
Moria, like we, we hide the door, everything about it. He wants to, you know, show personality a little bit here. And, you know, I think Peter Jackson does a great job of like, it's the book readers know, and it's not anything too much or too little for somebody who's watching it for the first time. You can tell he's really, really excited. Yep. And uh, we get, you know, you talk about the, the dwarf doors being invisible, and this is the opportunity Legolas takes to get a dig in on, on Gimli and the dwarves in general. Now, we don't get that exact dig in the text, but there is a similar d- dig at this same time. Um, it's a little bit more like historical and dry, so they, they sort of changed it a little bit. I think it works perfectly. It's very funny. They actually, this is uh, extended only. They take that out for the theatrical. Correct. We don't get this little dig. But um, in the books, when they're talking, Gandalf is explaining the history of the door. And I'll, I'll read a little passage here. Well, here we are at last, said Gandalf. Here the elven way from Holland ended. Holly was the token of the people of that land, and they planted it here to mark the end of their domain. For the west door was made chiefly for their use in their traffic with the lords of Moria. Those were happier days when there was still close friendship at times between folk of different race, even between dwarves and elves. It was not the fault of the dwarves that the friendship waned, said Gimli. I have not heard that it was the fault of the elves, said Legolas. I have heard both, said Gandalf, and I will not give judgment now. But I beg you to, Legolas and Gimli, at least to be friends and to help me. I need you both. So it's it's a great little scene, you know. It's like, hey, we got stuff to do, guys. Like, stop bickering about this, like, age-old rivalry between the, the dwarves and the elves and whose fault it is that the friendship ended. Right, and, and who who built the door? What, wasn't it, like, a teamwork thing? Exactly, exactly. Those were happier days. Those were happier right. days. Like, to my point, it's like, Legolas, who, who are you taking digs at? Like, you know, there's elvish writing up here. It's an elvish word that's going to open the door. It's like your people were involved too, you jerk. Well, not not his people because he wasn't well, uh, an yes. older elf. So he's just he's just a lesser elf anyway. Do we really have to care about anything Legolas has to say? Blonde, floating in the wind, running up all and Legolas. <laughs> he is actually kind of like the most ineffectual of all the of all the fellowship, I think. Uh, a little sidebar have you ever seen the video of like um the it's like a youtube video and it's the lord of the rings in its entirety whenever legolas speaks directly to frodo oh yeah and it's like one sentence it's the uh-huh. greatest thing i'm it makes me so happy to click that at any point and like send it to all my friends all the time i love it so i, I want to talk you know before we get into moria i just want to do a little brief sidebar and talk about what we know about Kazadoom. Um, why Gimli cares so much about it. Um, and, you know, you can chime in and correct my history a little bit. I, I know you know from personal knowledge and, you know, your fathers and forefathers before you probably told you all about Spent it. Spent a so. lot of time there. Yeah, yeah. I'm only reading the text from the, the elf, so I'm sure I'm getting some stuff wrong here. But uh, in the Silmarillion, and I did like a, a text search in the Silmarillion and there, for Casa Doom, and I think there's like, you could count on one hand the number of references to it. It really isn't very much. But... Um, Greatest of all the mansions of the dwarves was Kazadum, the Dwarodelf, Hadodron in the elvish tongue, which in afterwards in the days of its darkness called Moria. But it was far off in the mountains of mist beyond the wide leagues of Eriador, and to the Eldar came but as a name and a rumor from the words of the dwarves of the Blue Mountains. Um, and then another passage elsewhere in the Silmarillion. Eregion, which is Celebrimbor's realm, Eregion was nigh to the great mansions of the dwarves that were named Kazadum but by the elves Hadodrond, and afterwards Moria. 
From Asenethil, the city of the elves, the high road ran to the west gate of Khazadum, for a friendship arose between dwarves and elves, such as, as, such as has never elsewhere been, to the enrichment of both those peoples. So none of this history is explicitly referenced in the film. We get just a dash of it in the, in the Lord of the Rings books. Um, but I think it's fun context, you know, for people who watch the films and don't know all this background to know that, you know, this West gate that they are trying to enter is the elvish door that linked the, um, the kingdom of Aragion, the Noldoran elves, great realm, um, with the dwarves of Khazad Doom. And there was a lot of traffic. And so that's why the, the runes and letters on these doors are in elvish, um, because this was, you know, the elvish access door. And also because the dwarves don't share their language with anyone. So they wouldn't, even if it was uh, a door for trafficking with men, if that had been a thing, it would still not have been in dwarvish because the dwarves don't, don't share their language. Correct. But, but that's, that's why it happens to be, be elvish. It's Sindarin. Um, but that, I think that's kind of like interesting, interesting background. But, uh, you know, that was in the Second Age. Kazadum stretches all the way back to the first age and um you know it was established far before or long before the elves even met the dwarves because uh in the first age Kazadum and this part of middle earth was in the relative east of middle earth because there's a whole other like continent of beleriand that was farther to the west which is where most of the action with the elves were so um you know the dwarves established this kingdom of Kazadum for who knows how long. And then eventually dwarves started trickling over West and, and, you know, meeting the elves. And, and then they founded these other uh, kingdoms that interacted more with the elves farther in the West in Beleriand. Um, then Beleriand goes under the water. All those realms are destroyed. Khazad-dûm is all that's left. It's more now in the middle of Middle Earth rather than in the Far East. And all the, the remnants of those other dwarven kingdoms, they're all now flooding to Khazad-dûm um, and populating it and enriching it. And so now Khazad-dûm in the Second Age is like the, the kingdom. It was always the biggest kingdom, and now it is like super, it's like... It wasn't like they had a cool house, but they had a hundred acres to go with. At this point, like in the Second Age, Khazad-dûm is like, it is the spot. If you were going to point to like, what is the coolest, grandest, most fulfilled kingdom, it's Khazad-dûm. And Gimli mm-hmm. at this point probably believes when he walks in that it's going to be bustling and there's going to be dwarves all over and people wanting to trade families in there. When, when you go back to the second age, I mean, even when you watch the Hobbit, um, you see a little bit of like the dwarves are mining, they're finding mithril. They find the Arkenstone. You see like all this gold everywhere that eventually like Smaug comes to like try to claim or whatever, you know, like a little sidebar of the story. Mm-hmm. But in the Second Age, Khazad Doom is like the grandest of the grand. It is in all of its glory. I try to tell people who don't really follow Lord of the Rings, like, where do you want to go to vacation? Like, what to you, like, what would be you define as like the greatest city in the world? And if you could go there and spend time there, like, to you, it would be the greatest. Like, that's Khazad Doom if you multiplied that city tenfold. Like, if you think Las Vegas, you know, is the coolest. Multiply that by 10. That's what Khazad Doom was like. Like, it was that big, uh, especially, like, again, trade hub with the elves to the west. And that's why you had that little alliance going on there. That's why that door gets made. Um, it, it is just like the greatest city, as far as I'm concerned, in Middle Earth's history. Well, and I'm also fascinated. I don't, I don't know much about mountain ranges, but like, this is all under the mountains. 
Mm-hmm. And Gandalf will later say, uh, it's a four-day journey to the other side. So a four-day journey from the west gate to the east gate. So that's taking them from the west side of the mountain range to the east side of the mountain range. And they will end up having gone totally through the mountains. Is that like a realistic amount of time to walk the width of a mountain range? Like, or, or is that just because it's, it's, there's, the paths are winding and they're going down and they're going up? It's adding time to the journey across the mountain range. Because it's four days, like I've gone hiking and four day journey just across the, like the narrow part, mm-hmm. the width of the mountain range. That seems like way too long. Well, one, you got to factor in that in this group, there are hobbits and there are dwarves and their legs are smaller. Okay. So it's going to take a little bit longer to get like the same amount of steps in as you would. Yeah. Like, but dwarves, step- dwarves are very fast over short distances. So I that's, mean- that's what I hear. That's what I hear. <laughs> Um, but I think what you, what you said plays a major part in it. It's not just a straight walk. Um, you can't just hop on the trolley and take it to the east side of town and exit and, you know, be there in 30 minutes. There's so much in it. I mean, even, again, we'll see in a scene coming up where Gandalf kind of, like, lights up the staff and, like, looks down. you got to watch your step. And I'm sure you had to watch your step even then. It's not like they had, you know, guardrails going across and arrows pointing wherever it's almost maze-like, and when you factor the amount, you probably have to go up, go down, go around, because it's not just a straight shot through. It's not like a regular developed city in our real world, where if you, like, look down from a plane, it kind of looks like all the houses are lined up in, like, rectangles and squares. It's not like that. So I think, to your point, that four-day time he's talking about probably has a lot to do with just trying to be very careful with how you're navigating in this area, because it's not a straight shot. Well, if there are any uh, mountaineers out there who have uh, gone spelunking in giant caves under the mountains. <laughs> Let us know, because I would love to know. If there are any real cities under mountains, if that were a thing. Also, it's like if you carve out an entire city, I don't know, those mountains collapse. <laughs> One earthquake. You'd be very concerned. I don't know like what the safety rating would be on that on like, Zillow, but you'd probably have to lower value a little bit. Right, right. I mean, you know, I don't know. Maybe they get some trusses in there, some support beams, and it's all good. It's all good. They can carve out as much of the rock as they want. It's all safe. Yeah, I trust it. It's dwarven, and anything built by the dwarves has never broken before, you know, like Narsil. Right, right. (laughs) So before we move on from this scene, there's one other piece here that I want your opinion on. I want to know how offended you are. So on Mm. the doors, it says, uh, and Gandalf read this, the doors say, the doors of Durin, Lord of Moria, speak friend and enter. And what is curious is the phrase Lord of Moria. Now, Moria is a Sindarin word, mm-hmm. meaning black chasm or black pit. It is not an affectionate word. It is more of an insult because elves don't like dwarves and elves don't like things that are underground. So it is, has a very negative connotation to it. Okay, fine. That's what the elves would say. But then why is it on doors to the kingdom that were co-created by Celebrimbor and Narvi? Um, I would assume Narvi would be like, hey, you know that word you're trying to use that's like kind of a slur that's really offensive to our people? Maybe we use Kazadum or, you know, something else. Uh, it, it, it seems a little um, unusual that Moria would be on these doors. To me, and... Uh... This is the only way that I can have it make sense in my head because it wouldn't make sense for them to have that. 
is that language changes over time mm -hmm. and maybe a term that they were using as like a term of endearment back then over time developed into being like a shot at the dwarf so when it was originally built and and you know written it was like more of like a legit friendly term and the dwarves wouldn't have been offended by it but then you know maybe just you know how language develops over time you know you could pick a word and what it meant 10 years ago might not mean the same thing now that's the only way it makes sense to me why you know durin or even narvi wouldn't just put a hammer through anybody walking through that door <laughs> you know with what's written above it like the elves right. think they're super tricky and super witty but they're really not or maybe a way it works is it's it's actually the opposite cuz like you know when you're with your friends you rib each other, right? You, yes. you call each other names, you insult each other, but it's in a loving way. So maybe, you know, the friendship between Celebrimbor and Narvi and the dwarves and the elves in general, it's gotten to this point where this elvish word, which was originally, it, it has a negative connotation. Yeah. It's kind of now a, become a joke between them, right? It's like, uh, yeah. Moria, you know, you live in Moria, the black pit. And they're like, you know, and so they're kind of ribbing each other. And so it's, it's maybe including it as a product of their friendship. This insulting word is now kind of uh, a token of their friendship that they just sort of joke with each other. It, I would think that they wouldn't want to uh, include the word on something that's, you know, inscribed there forever, even if it yeah. is a joke, but maybe that's an explanation. At the time when it was done, it would look the opposite of a black pit. Like it was, there was, you know, gold everywhere, mithril, the halls right. were booming, friendships. So, like, maybe that was, like, the joke of it. Like, you know, you're, you you walk up to somebody's mansion in real life, and you're like, oh, this little thing right here? Like, it's just a joke. And the person right. inside would know that it's a joke, too, because, like, they know. Uh, it, it makes sense. And there's, there's another reference to Moria later on. Um, and I guess we might as well talk about it now. Later on, when uh, they get to the tomb of Balin, on the tomb is inscribed... You know, Balin, Lord of Moria. To the extent, I think we've come up with like a, a plausible explanation for why it might be on there uh, in the Second Age when it was, those words were inscribed on the door. But to the extent that it doesn't make sense, so there's some sort of anachronism there that doesn't make sense. It does make sense, I think, in the case of Balin, because that's later in the Third Age. And we know that dwarves adopted the the terms and language of you know, like Westron, they'd speak in Westron when they're traveling yeah. around, right? They're not using their native tongue. And at this point in the Third Age, Moria is such a widely used term for Casa Doom. It's that's just what everybody calls it now. Yeah, when Gimli calls out about it, and he's saying, you know, he, he he's not using it like there's some sort of negative connotation associated with the word. He's excited. It's Moria. Like he's really right. amped right. up for it. So now Balin is just, you know, well, he's the Lord of Moria. That's what people call it. So he's adopting that term, and so they inscribe it on his tomb. Um, so it makes, it makes perfect sense in that instance, because it's the third age and it's just this earlier second age inscription that is a little bit puzzling, uh, I think to, to a lot of people. So you look at that Legolas and Gimli moment we just had where he kind of ribs them a little bit, you know, if they have a relationship like that and they're not that close yet, then maybe Celebrimbor and Narvi are that close when that gets built and they have that relationship where they think that it's, you know, it's funny. It's a rib. It's okay to pull on one of the boys. So go mm -hmm. ahead and write it. It's fine. Right. Right. One explanation, another plausible explanation that is proposed by, um, in, so I got this whole, I know, I noticed this not on my own, but, uh, Hammond and Skull, a reader's companion, which is a great companion piece. If you're reading the, the Lord of the Rings, they draw all kinds of references and connections. 
and it helps me, you know, dig out some of the stuff I might not have otherwise seen. But they point this out, and one of the plausible explanations they propose is that this is a function of translation. That maybe this is when they got to the doors, Gandalf, in reading the translation, reading the doors, uh, the inscription to everyone, just said Moria because that's what people say now. And so then Frodo, who later, you know, puts down this story in recounting the tale, he remembers, okay, Gandalf said Moria. So I'm going to reverse engineer that and I'm going to reverse engineer the Cinderin and put that. So when I draw the doors from memory, I'm reverse engineering the Cinderin to be Moria. Um, But at the time in real life, it wasn't Moria. It was Khazad-dum or something or Hadadrand. I think that is a phenomenal theory and it makes sense. There's a lot of different ways you could go with it. And the fun of Tolkien is sometimes you never know. And sometimes Tolkien didn't even know. So, Right. It's, it's it's, yeah. There's a lot of openness to some things. There's contradictions to some things as you go and read. And, you know, that's, that's the beauty of having something that lasts this long and has been read and cherished by so many people that there, you know, people will find stuff like this and they'll question these things. And that's terrific. And unfortunately he's no longer around to answer these things. But I think maybe an answer he picks, you know, 20 years ago, if he was still alive 10 years ago, maybe he changes that up because he feels like from a a writer's standpoint, it makes more sense to do it X, Y, or Z way than how he originally intended it. Kind of like rewriting the doors. It's uh, something that you just tweak over time throughout life. Right, right. So also from Hammond and Skull, um, Christopher Tolkien at some point transcribed the the spells of command that Gandalf initially tries to use. And I think that spells are interesting. All references to spells are interesting in the Lord of the Rings because they're so scant. You know, there are so few um, times that any character exhibits magic because, you know, magic isn't really a thing in the way we conventionally think of it. And so the use of the word spell is also like very, very rare because that's kind of like a layman's way of thinking about magic. And Gandalf's not really doing spells per se. Um, even though it might look like it to our to our brains. But so Christopher Tolkien translates the Cinderin command. You know, he says, Enon, Edhelen, Edro, Hamen. And my pronunciation is terrible because I don't actually speak uh, Cinderin. You but don't? I, I, I don't. Did I fool you? Did it pass? You had me. <laughs> but all Gandalf is saying there is, Elvish gate open now for us. Doorway of the dwarf folk. Listen to the word of my tongue. So he's literally just saying in Cinderin, Door, open, open for me. That's like when you're trying to log into an app and you're, you're like, my password is password and it's not, but you're like, that's the first thing you're going with when you can't remember. Like, ah, uh, favorite animal, like dog, one, two, three. Oh, shoot, that's <laughs> not it. Right, right. I mean, he's basically just like banging on the side of his computer. Open, on, on. You think about spells of command things. It's, he's really just talking to the door, you know, spells to the extent that they're really spells. They're just a function of Gandalf and his inner power. This I don't even think is is a spell. He's just, there's a password and he's just trying to remember what it is. You think of a spell as like exhibiting a power that forces someone or something to do something. That's not really what's going on here. The door is like designed to have a password and he's just trying to remember what it is, even though he's calling it a spell. So when Gandalf can't remember what the spells, what the spell is or what the password is, he says, there was a time when I remembered all the spells in, you know, Elvish dwarvish tongues of men and of orcs spells by orcs that always befuddled me it's like orcs have spells that seems totally bizarre 
but again, as you were kind of just, you know, reading there, is that just, is it a spell and how we're thinking of it? Like the ability to levitate or push an object or, you know, make a fireball? Or is it like a command that they use and they refer to it as a spell? Right, right, right. It's, you know, whatever uh, innate power is sort of in their nature and they sort of uh, imbue items and totems with it. It's not really magical per se. It's just like their connection to nature or whatever they're working with. And I guess, you know, orcs have the ability to do that too in, in some way. But I really want to see, I want to see a spinoff series of Gandalf, whatever adventures took him among or- orcish communities where he learned orc spells, you know? Or even dwarvish spells, you know, because dwarves tend to have a resistance to magic, not have like an affinity for it. So like what spells were... Again, what is a spell in, in this context? You know, I think the mm-hmm. orcs had a spell in the in the Hobbit movies where uh, one of the orcs yelled, Bolg! And then uh, out of the blue, Bolg showed up and he sent them on a mission <laughs> to go hunt some dwarves down. But like, I didn't, that's how you summon things in, in you know, orcish, I guess. Yeah. Mo- most of orcish spells, I think it's just them yelling really loud, grunting. It's an odd noise and you just got to tell from their physical presence what it is they're they're after. Right, right. This episode is brought to you by Four Cats Boutique on Etsy. That's the number four and cats with a K. Katie and Jordan have some lovely art they would love for you all to check out. They have custom bookmarks, prints, and even these beautiful book page posters that have passages from some of our favorite fantasy series like Lord of the Rings, A Song of Ice and Fire, and, of course, The Wheel of Time. You all really should check out Four Cats Boutique on Etsy and get yourself some bookmarks and amazing artwork. That's the number four and cats with a K. Four Cats Boutique on Etsy. All right, let's check out the next scene. The camera pans away, and when we return, the fellowship is resting, and Gandalf is still trying passwords. Sam says goodbye to Bill the Pony. Aragorn stops Merry and Pippin from tossing rocks into the pool. Do not disturb the water. The pace quickens as the camera cuts back and forth between Gandalf and Frodo at the gate and Merry, Pippin, Aragorn, and Boromir at the water. Frodo says that the lines on the door are a riddle. It's a riddle. Pippin stares as the water in the lake ripples. Frodo asks for the elvish word Speak for friend. friend. And enter. What's the elvish word for friend? The lake water ripples more. Gandalf answers Madelon, and the doors begin to open. The Fellowship makes their way inside as Gimli brags about the fabled hospitality of the dwarves and laughs that anyone would call Moria a mine. Soon, Master Elf, you will enjoy the fabled hospitality of the dwarves. Roaring fires, malt beer, red meat off the bone. This, my friend, is the home of my cousin Balin, and they call it a mine. A mine! This is no mine. Boromir says it is more like a tomb as the dead bodies of dwarves are revealed with the light of Gandalf's staff. Gimli wails. Boromir says they should leave and make the gap of Rohan. We should never have come here. At that moment, a tentacle grasps Frodo and pulls him to the water. Sam chops it off, but a dozen more spring out, grabbing at the fellowship. Aragorn, Legolas, and Boromir hew at the many tentacles, but the beast's hideous head rises out of the water. Aragorn cuts the, te- cuts the tentacle holding Frodo just in time, and Frodo falls into Boromir's arms. 
The Fellowship flees back inside the doors. As the beast tries to pursue, the walls of the cave collapse around it, barring the entrance. The Fellowship is trapped. So this is the Watcher in the Water scene. Uh, this is, uh, uh, there's a lot to love about this scene. Um, but uh, I, I just sort of want to throw it to you and um, see what you have to think. So when uh, I watched this for research purposes earlier, uh, mm-hmm. just kind of going through it on my own, something that stood out to me that I never really noticed in past watches is Aragorn and uh, Sam. They're you know letting Bill the pony go because he's a great pony and he should be let go so he's not trapped out there. He's but the goodest the, boy. The right, oh, he deserves all the pets. But while the rest of the group is kind of huddled around the door and hanging out there, the, that entire scene, Sam and Aragorn are just off to the side with Bill the pony, and it, it's almost like the the two, you know, Frodo gets a lot of the credit, but it's like the two real heroes, Aragorn <laughs> and Sam, kind of hanging off to the side, doing hero stuff, letting the good boy go, so he doesn't uh-huh. have to stay out there while they traverse through the mine. That part stood out to me earlier. I thought that was pretty cool. It was annoying to see Pip, like, spike the rocks into the water. Like, why wouldn't you try to skip them? <laughs> right, Most right, people right. would skip the rocks, and maybe that wouldn't wake the Watcher up so easily. And then, uh, again, I'm not trying to blame or shame, but for Legolas to be the archer that people think that he is, if he were able to have his arrow strike true, and strike down the Watcher in the water, then the entrance doesn't get collapsed, they don't get trapped inside, and they don't have to go through the mine the way that they're they're headed that way now. But instead, he just, like, I don't know. He, what was he even aiming at? Like, his, his aim has been much better doing other things, but in this one instance where it's his time to shine and step up, he just really let me down. <laughs> well, he did hit the, the Watcher in the face once it emerged from the water. You couldn't pull it back far enough to have it hit its brain and end <laughs> him or make him turn true. away so he doesn't grab the entrance and bring it down. It was a weak shot. It was just a little Terrible love tap. Shot. Love tap. Everybody else slicing off limbs, and he's over here just, pew, pew, like, ah, oh, come on, bro. Get get in on this. So one thing that's kind of interesting oh, about the watch One the more water. thing. I hate to interrupt. Yeah. But the other part that I did like was that of all people to catch Frodo, it was, you know, Boromir, who, you know, is the one trying to take the ring from him at different points in time. Mm. I thought that was kind of poetic that he was showing you that side where he's willing to be like on the hero end of it as well. Right. Right. And he does have a lot of hero moments in in the books and in the film. Um, Even though he's very reluctant to go into Moria. I mean, he's like constantly grumbling about it in the books and in the movie. He's like, Oh, why are we, why are we going here? And you know, in the movie, he's like, we should go to the gap of Rohan. You know, let's get out of here. The first excuse, like let's leave. But uh, there's a, there's a interesting little, change here that I think is worth talking about. And that is the identity of the people who are throwing rocks in the water and the identity of the person that stops them. So um, in the movie, of course, it's Mary and Pippin who are throwing rocks in the water. And as you point out, they're not even doing it right. They're not even skipping the rocks. They're just like, man, just like throwing them down, basically like straight down into the water. Let's make a big splash. Uh, and Aragorn stops them. Uh, in the book, it's actually Boromir that's throwing rocks. 
because he's kind of like grumbling. He's a little bit morose. He's like, why are we even here? And he just like throws a rock into the water, like kind of frustrated. And, and Frodo stops him. Um, Frodo's like, you know, why, why would you do that? That was very, very dumb. Um, You should not throw rocks into this like evil pool because Frodo has this sense of dread. Like there's something wrong with this water. Um, So they completely switch around the identities of the people who who are throwing the rocks were the offenders and the people who are calling them out. Um, and I, I'm curious if you, how, you, if you think that matters, like, you know, the way that that changes the import of that scene, I, you know, I have some thoughts, but I'm curious what you think. Well, I think of course that that does change the implications and the weight of everything. So then you try to put yourself in Peter Jackson's shoes and come up for why would he, why would he change that? Um, and again, I don't have like a phenomenal reason for it. I just think from a, a movie standpoint, you're not trying to point the arrow too much at Boromir for doing wrong or too much at Aragorn for doing right all the time. Um, and I think that, you know, sure, Merry and Pip can be annoying, but they're also lovable and very easy to like, and even when they're acting like a little bit childish or funny. And it doesn't really get the audience to kind of jump on their backs too much in, in that regard. But I don't, I don't really have like a great reason for why you switch it up and like why it would matter so much for Peter to do that. Yeah. So I, I, I have a theory and I don't think it's ultimately, I don't think it's that important of a change, but uh, my theory is that, you know, in a movie we spend less time with the characters. So you have to use every scene to maximum effect to establish the characterization of each individual. You know, who are they? What are their character traits? So we kind of understand their motivations and who they are in every scene. So you really, you can't waste time. And, you know, Tolkien, because it's a novel, the Lord of the Rings novel, he can play around with it. So he can have, uh, he can switch characters' roles a little bit sometimes and, and still have plenty of time to establish who they are. Jackson has to use every scene to maximum effect. And so, the the reason I'm saying that and I'm prefacing things with that comment is we kind of know who Mary and Pippin are. They're the funny tricksters. And so let's use this as another opportunity to establish that characterization. It totally is consistent with what we already know about them, that they're just kind of childlike. Um, and so let's have them be childlike in this scene. Um, so it makes sense that they would be the ones throwing the rocks. Um, and the reason I think it's Aragorn that stops them and not Frodo is because of another change they make. Frodo is the one who figures out the riddle. In the books, it's not. It's it's just Gandalf. He just sort of figures it out. You know, Mary had made a suggestion to him like earlier in the night. And so so Mary kind of gets the credit. But it really it was ultimately Gandalf that figured out, oh, I'm being dumb. Like, it just means I should just say friend. In, in this movie, it's Frodo who kind of cracks the code. And so they need Frodo to be by Gandalf when all this is going on. So they take Frodo out of that, uh, out of proximity to stop Merry and Pippin. Um, so they need someone else to be the hero. Who's the other real hero in the group? It's Aragorn. So I, I think that's kind of why they made some of those some of those changes. Um, and they already, you know, with Boromir being unhappy about being in the Mines of Moria, they're already establishing that later when they enter. And he's like, let's go to the Gap of Rohan, you know. So they're kind of doing that that job already. And it always did kind of bristle me a little bit that Boromir would be so dumb as to just throw rocks. One thing it does lose, you know, I think the significance of it in the books is why does Frodo think it's important that they not throw rocks in the pool? It's just a pool. I mean, Gandalf does say it has an un- unwholesome look, but like, 
what would you really think of uh, about that? Why would you think there's actual danger in the pool? And I think the reason Frodo knows, uh, he has, the book says he has like a sense of unease, a sense of dread about the pool. I think it's because he's carrying the ring and he has more sensitivity to those sorts of things than other members of the fellowship. So Boromir is being like kind of dumb, but not that dumb. The reason Frodo knows it's bad is because he's carrying the ring. And, you know, in the books we learn as they're going through the Mines of Moria, like his senses are enhanced. He's uh, he hears Gollum. He's the only one who hears Gollum pattering behind them. Um, and we see this later in a later scene in this movie as well. Like, so the ring sort of either it's the ring or the wound from the Morgul blade. It sort of enhanced his sense, senses in the dark and sensitivity to evil. Um, so I, I, but that's a very, very subtle, subtle thing. And I think the most important aspect of the scene is just to tell the audience, Hey, there's something evil in the water. And, you know, despite the change, the scene perfectly accomplishes that. So I think it's perfectly fine that they change the scene and it kind of just makes things simpler and streamlines it, makes it consistent with the characters. You ever, um, have like a moment where you've got people around and you're trying to do something and nothing is kind of going right and there's like just that one person they're not doing anything wrong but everything that they're doing in that moment is like annoying you so then you kind of like snap at them they're having a hard time getting in the door it's not going well they're racking their brains trying to figure out what do we say to get in what spell needs to be cast for us to get in and boromir's over here dunking rocks in the water <laughs> making noise yeah. maybe frodo was just annoyed and looking for right the i'm like bro stop come on don't yeah. do that. You know, maybe maybe that's what it is. I just it's fascinating to think about little changes like that that people don't really think about or point out. Like you do change the entire chemistry of the party though when you're right. making it, you know, Pip instead of Boromir and it's Frodo instead of Aragorn. It's little things that in the grand scheme of the story, I guess it really doesn't matter. But then it's also like, well, then why change it to begin with? Uh -huh. Like you said, from a movie standpoint, to give people their fair share of screen time and getting that little bit of development wherever you can get it, all that does make sense. And they wanted to give Frodo a little bit more of a hero moment, helping get the doors open, because they are—they have taken hero moments away from Frodo in other places. They did, like, yeah. You know, his hero moment at the Fords of Bruinen—they took that away from him. They gave it to Arwen. You know, in the books, he's actually—it's a great hero moment for him, and he's basically just like a slobbering fool in the movies at that, at that point. So, uh, you know, they're sort of reshuffling his hero moments a little bit to give him at least a a tad of a moment. But I, I like your explanation. Boromir is basically the guy who's like chewing his gum really loudly in the library, you know. Or yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's oh, like the internet's up. not working at your house or something. Your kid walks in and they're like, I need you to get me. So you're like, just give me a second. Uh -huh. it's, it's one of those moments. Like you're frustrated about nothing. It'll go away in a second. But he's just, you know, Boromir's a big baby. Well, speaking of big babies, Gimli walking in through. The... <laughs> I <laughs> just the look. I just did it for the look on your face. Well, okay, okay. <laughs> but no. So they enter. The doors open. They enter, and Gimli's you know bragging. He's like, "Oh, the fabled hospitality of the dwarves." And uh, so there's a lot that's different here. Um, and I've, we talked about it kind of on previous episodes. But in the books, Gimli does not know or really believe with any confidence that. Balin is there with a thriving kingdom. You know, the Correct. whole reason he's at the Council of Elrond is because, among other things, like one of the pieces of news he's bringing is, hey, Balin went to like repopulate Khazad-dûm and we haven't heard from him in years. 
So we don't know what's going on, but obviously we're worried. Um, so, you know, if it had been true to the books, he would be eager, but not like hopeful. And he certainly wouldn't be walking in like, expect, like, hey, it's going to be a party. You know, where's the, you know, where's the beer bongs? You know, he, he wouldn't be expecting that. One of the critiques I have about and with the Rings of Power, when I got to go to London, I got to talk to them about the dwarves specifically. And, you know, I try not to compare to previous adaptations too much because it's a whole different ballgame. But this is one of those moments that you bring up with them and you go, so Gimli in the movies is, you know, puffing his chest out before they get to the door. When they finally get in, in, in from the movie standpoint, in this adaptation, he walks in, there's no sign of light anywhere at all. No sounds that they're hearing in the distance that make you think there's friendly people around right. or anything. It's dark. And he's still telling people like, oh, in just a moment, you're going to get that famous dwarvish hospital. No, they, like they made him look so stupid right there. Right, right. It's just one of the few moments where I'm like, I can point directly to and go, that, that oh, you, you did him wrong right there. It doesn't make any sense. And it would have been better for him in my eyes to be more like, cautiously kind of concerned maybe not right. saying too much and then had he have met Balin in there he could have like really hyped everybody up but i think they they were doing this for a dramatic effect to roll into another scene right right yeah the way that they cut it together we as the audience are seeing orc corpses while gimli is still talking about how they're about to have a huge party so they, they the way they edited it it just did not work like like you said it made gimli look a little bit foolish and also like yeah you would think if they have established a kingdom you know reestablished the kingdom that there would be somebody at the doors you know uh, wouldn't you think that there you would wouldn't be... have zero lighting at a gate yeah it doesn't quite work it does seem a little bit foolish but um and also the fabled hospitality of the dwarves are dwarves fabled for their hospitality don't we get don't we get along with everybody? Haven't you seen Battle of Five Armies? Like everybody likes the dwarves. Everybody gets along with them. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, and no slight against the dwarves. You know, the, uh, you know that I love them, um, but they are sort of an insular people, right? That's kind of one of their characteristics. They're not throwing their doors open, inviting everyone in all the time. The, it, I, as far as I know, it's not really a part of their myth or their legend or who they are that they're like, no, you know, having parties with all the other peoples that they're, they're having parties you, amongst themselves, maybe, but not, not even if you else. look to the Hobbit movies again, and I just keep bringing it up because there's so many doors in yeah. the Hobbit. Um, you know, they, they make it to Rivendell and they're around Elrond and he's inviting them in to eat and have a feast. And first they're like they push back on it and they think that they're like cursing him out or something and that elrond's trying to be disrespectful but he's being polite inviting them in to eat and you know you know rest up a little bit and then when it is time for them to eat they're like embarrassing themselves with you know the way that they're drinking and eating they're not known for hospitality so this is just sort of one of the subtle ways that they changed gimli a little bit and we'll see another example later the way he reacts when he sees that um balin is dead when that's confirmed his reaction is a little bit different i i love john rice davies i love gimli in the movies i i think the comedy works great so i i am not pointing out these differences to be like oh they did gimli dirty and and it sucks and i hate it um i actually really like the version of gimli we get in in the lord of the rings it is it's fun i think the comedy hits almost spot on every single time 
Um, but it is just different, you know, um, it, and the dwarves are much more somber in, in Tolkien's Legendarium. There, you know, there is a weightiness to them um, as a people and to their experiences and to Gimli. There's a weightiness to, to him as a character that um, doesn't really match what goes on in the movies. He's a little bit used for comic relief, just some more levity, which I like, but it's just different. And, and I'm being critical, but I love the whole portrayal of Gimli, like growing again, growing up when it was time for us to like go to the park and we picked up sticks or whatever, we were going to like pretend that we were characters from the films. It was always Gimli for me. And I loved the comedy back then. It's just, as I've grown up a little bit, you, you know, and you read more, you're like, ah, maybe instead of telling a joke here, they could have had him do this or say this. But I I think he killed it as Gimli and mm-hmm. it is an iconic role and people still quote different lines that he's had. And, you know, people love like nerd of the rings had him on a stream a while back. And right. they, you know, I loved that whole conversation. Uh, he's an outstanding gentleman, but uh, I think he, you know, he made that a phenomenal role. And I think there is a very getting back to the whole change where Gimli is expecting Balin to have a thriving kingdom in the minds of Moria. I think there's a very good narrative reason for doing that. It's sort of a, a rule of thumb in screenwriting and storytelling in general that, you know, to create dramatic tension, you have your characters, they have a plan and there's an expectation. And then you throw one of the legs out from that chair, right? You, you throw an obstacle in the way that screws up their plan. And now they have to uh, deal with that challenge. And then they, they run into another challenge, another challenge, right? It's very basic. Um, you have to have your heroes encounter problems to create dramatic tension. Um, making it so that they all expected Moria to be a safer passage. You know, obviously Gandalf is concerned. Um, there's some hesitancy. But for the most part, Gandalf's hesitation in the films is not communicated to the members of the Fellowship. So the only thing that we in the audience hear is Gimli saying, Balin's there, he's got a kingdom. None of the other characters are hesitant. Gandalf has a hesitation, but he's not communicating it. So we get an inkling that maybe there's something dangerous there, but we're expecting a kingdom and that maybe some danger will reveal itself while they're there, but that we will encounter other dwarves. So we, as the audience, if you're not a book reader, you're expecting uh, potentially to, to be greeted by Balin and the others, right? So then they get there and then the monkey wrench is thrown into the mix, right? This is the, the reversal of expectations. They have a plan. They get into Moria. And then all the, there's dwarf corpses everywhere. Oh, my God. This is a dangerous place. There are goblins everywhere. We didn't realize that. We thought this was a safe haven. Boromir says, let's get out of here. Go to the Gap of Rohan. And they start turning back, right? Like So, all right, now our plan is we're going to leave. And then the Watcher in the Water comes out and traps them, right? So it creates this whole other dramatic element that is not quite present in the books where they, they, they want to leave in the movie. Once they enter, because they created this expectation to be safe and then that's reversed, now they want to leave. In the books, they weren't really expecting that. So they enter the doors and when the watch in the water comes out, um, they weren't trying to escape. It just pushes them farther in the direction that they were already going to go. Um, yeah, in the movie, they had a moment where it looked like they had the opportunity to back yeah. out mm-hmm. before they were forced to go further in. Right, right, exactly. Um, one other thing that's kind of interesting here is the watch in the water. Tell me if you see it differently, but the watch in the water lunges out 
chases them through the doors and it looks like basically just plows headfirst into the mountain and just collapses the mountain unintentionally and so the rocks come down i kind of assume the watch in the water is dead from in the film you know because the, the the rocks all crumble around it right is that do you see it the same way no i in, in my well maybe he dies from having like four or five of his like tentacle limbs cut off and he's got an arrow in his forehead he's gonna have to pull out later and I'm not really sure, you know, how deep that water is for him to just hang out and live in there. But I, I don't know when I when I watch it, and I don't pay too close attention to it. But it, to me, it almost felt like he he intentionally like grabs the entrance, like the entryway, and like tries to pull it down and rip it down to trap them in to be like you know almost like childlike. You're gonna hurt me. I'm gonna do something. Even if mm-hmm. I can't hurt you directly, I'm gonna. You're not gonna come back this way then. Right. Right. Okay. Because your interpretation of it, what you see when you watch it, is pretty consistent with what we see in the books, actually. The, the, the watch in the water you know, chases them inside, and then once they're inside, the doors are closed, they hear you know, a bit of a you know, clamor outside, and Gandalf says, oh, there are boulders being you know, put in front of the doors, and uh, he uprooted the great trees that have been standing there for ages. Uh, what a shame. So basically... The Watch in the Water has seems to have more agency, more of an agenda in the books where the Watcher is intentionally barring the gate so they can't get out, right? So, like, the Watcher has a reason for wanting them to stay inside. Whereas in the films, I always watch it like it's just a mindless beast chasing after them and just kind of plows into the wall and unintentionally Clunk collapses his head and it. Himself yeah, out. right, right, right. So the whole, like, possibility of seeing an agency in its actions was lost. But it's, you know... That's why I asked you, because it's a little bit unclear. So, like, maybe you can see it the other way, and it sounds like you did, where it is intentionally barring the gate. Um, I I got to say, one high point of uh, of these scenes is just the design, the sound design and the visual design of The Watcher in the Water. I think they nailed that. Just nailed it, nailed it to a T. We don't get a ton of description in the books about The Watcher in the Water. Um, actually, it's unclear whether it is one beast or whether it's a number of snakes or a number of like different beasts, you know, cause there's like 21 tentacles. The book says lurch out of the water. So, um, they don't know. And I think Frodo even asks like, is it, is it, was it a beast or was it many guided by a singular force? Um, so we don't really know. I'm, I always imagined being as imagined it as being a single sort of Lovecraftian monster. Um, and that's the direction that the Jackson team went. And I think it just looks, looks awesome. And sort of a production point is that the the studio did not want them to include the scene. They wanted this cut because the original film was going to be really, really long and bloated. Budgets were an issue. New Line Cinema was not a major, major studio. Um, if they're like, this is going to be a huge CGI nightmare, just cut it. It has no real narrative purpose. It doesn't do anything. It's just like a, a monster moment, which is fun, but let's cut it. And j- this is one of the times when Jackson like put his foot down to like, no, we need, we need, need, need this moment. Um, and he made a case for it narratively that it was an important break in the pacing, like because there had been a lot of like walking and trotting and things like not that there would have been no action, but they needed to encounter something that was a little more alive. Right. And so he said, we need this moment where there's a monster interaction. And uh, so he fought for it and he got it. And I'm glad that he did, because I think the watch in the water is one of the uh, special effects wins for yeah. the fellowship. I, I always in my head, he's like a, like this, like you said, Lovecraftian type of Kraken type creature, and you can't really truly describe like what it is, and you're not 
fully sure, and I think that's part of like the allure or draw of the Watcher in the Water, is that like it's still partially a mystery that Legolas could have killed with a better play <laughs> shot. He's just an elf, man. He can't, you know, he can't do everything. He's not actually a superhero. He's just one elf. Just one elf. I've seen him spin his way up an elephant and and climb up falling rocks from a bridge, but he couldn't place that one shot. We don't speak of those scenes here. We don't speak of those scenes. <laughs> one of the most memorable things about The Watcher in the Water is the way it sounds. So here to tell us a little bit about the sound design is Jordan Rennells from the Music of Middle-Earth podcast. So today we're going to be taking a look at one of my favorite monsters in the trilogy, The Watcher in the Water. I'm going to start things off in this episode by letting us listen to the actual recording of this creature in the appendices of the Lord of the Rings DVDs. So let's take a listen. This movement is made up of two main elements. They're both really simple as well. First one's actually a plunger. So I went and tried to create my own kind of environment for these um, plunger noises. And I set up my mobile recording setup, got my plunger out, and created a few sounds. So let's take a listen to what those sound like, just totally on their own, not affected, not altered in any way. Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to take that sample and I'm going to slow it down, and I'm going to pitch it down, and then I'm going to play it back for you so that you can start to hear how it starts to distance itself a little bit from a plunger sound, and it starts to become something else. Let's listen. Now to really make this kind of all glue together and get that environment sound sounding really nice, I basically just added a big reverb, a big echo to the sound. And that really makes it start to sound like we're right outside Moria. second element is actually going to be, again, pretty simple. To get the sound of the tentacles and kind of flying around where they grab Frodo and kind of get cut away by the Fellowship, they used rubber floor mats. They kind of covered them with water and started waving them in front of the microphones at different speeds and, and kind of sharpness. So that's what I did. And let's listen to that totally on its own. So again, what I did with that is I, I started to pitch it down, play around with the timing of some things, and this is how it comes out after doing that. I put that same type of Moria reverb onto it to kind of create that environment for it. For the vocal element, they actually used just one sample at the very end when Legolas gets the Watcher with one of his arrows. We hear a groan, and that's actually a walrus groan. So what I did was I grabbed some walrus sounds from online, and again, pitched them down, 
and played around with them and added that more of reverb. So let's listen to those as they normally are with no alterations. <laughs> listen to that pitch down. So let's add that Moria reverb to it and hear how that sounds. So now, the final moment, we get to piece everything together and see how it all sounds when we add all of those elements together. If you're enjoying Watch Party, Lord of the Rings, you really should check out our Wheel of Time podcast, hosted by Rourke Tharmston. Rourke is a Wheel of Time expert and each week breaks down the latest episode from Amazon's adaptation of The Wheel of Time with a panel of brilliant and funny guests who have never read the books. If you've already read The Wheel of Time books, this podcast will be fun for you because you'll get to experience the show through the eyes of first-timers. And if you're new to The Wheel of Time universe yourself, then Watch Party Wheel of Time is really perfect because there are no spoilers. That's right, Watch Party Wheel of Time gives you spoiler-free analysis and discussion of each episode. Check it out today, available on every major podcasting platform. Watch Party, Wheel of Time. So let's take a look at our next scene. We now have but one choice. We must face the long dark of Moria. Be on your guard. There are older and fouler things than orcs in the deep places of the world. Now, without any other choice, the Fellowship starts the four-day journey through Moria. The caverns are vast and dark, the air is thick, and the paths are winding and decayed. Gandalf explains that the wealth of Moria was in Mithril, as the light of his staff illuminates Mithril veins running in the walls of a deep pit, and tells the Fellowship about Bilbo's Mithril shirt. Bilbo had a shirt of Mithril rings that Thorin gave him. Oh, that was a kingly gift! Yes! I never told him, but its worth was greater than the value of the Shire. The Fellowship arrives at a three-way juncture, but Gandalf doesn't remember which way to go. The Fellowship again takes a rest as they wait for the wizard. When Frodo sees Gollum following them in the distance, we arrive at the emotional center of this film. When Frodo wishes that Bilbo had killed Gollum, Gandalf chastises Frodo, telling him, Pity. It was pity that stayed Bilbo's hand. Many that live deserve death, and some that die deserve life. Can you give it to them, Frodo? Do not be too eager to deal out death and judgment. Even the very wise can see all ends. Frodo wishes that none of this had happened. Gandalf tells him there is a force for good at work, and that it was Frodo's fate to carry the rest. wish none of this had happened. So do all who live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. 
All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. I love these scenes, and th- this is really, as I mentioned in the summary, I think the emotional center of this of this film. Um, and but before we get to that good stuff, you know, there are several scenes, no dialogue, but we just see the Fellowship wandering through the paths of Moria, and this is where we really get the the design of Moria is featured. There's another scene, our next scene that we'll cover is when they get into the big cavern where it's like the kingdom of Moria. We can actually imagine being a kingdom, but these scenes where they're wandering through, Moria really looks decayed and decrepit, and you, it's hard to imagine it being a kingdom. You can, you see the passage of time. I mean, um, you know, you see the wear and the tear, and they're they're climbing up steep staircases with with bones of dead dwarves, and they're everything's crumbling, and you really can't imagine it as being a bright, well lit, beautiful place. You can only see it as being the ominous dark pit that everyone is afraid of um and sort of as a side note you know we're not talking about the rings of power series but i'm very excited to see this same location reimagined as a thriving kingdom you know before uh, a millennia of decay has set in um but i think this is you know i I love the design choices because you feel the darkness you know they didn't light it up too much it is dark it is scary you know there's a lot of pages in the book where it talks about them dodging cracks in the ground. Like they could fall down hidden chasms and chasms open up before them as they walk. And I really get that vibe when I'm watching these scenes. And as you were talking about, it just, it gives you that sense of scale that this is massive. It is a pit. There is so much like the name Moria does fit in this sense. And like you said, we're not here to talk about rings of power, but I'm hoping that, when we watch that and you see Kaza Doom in all its glory, when you come back and watch this, it gives you that extra sense of appreciation for what it is you're watching and how how much it has changed from what it was to what it is now as they're kind of going through trying to get through the mountain. I uh, applaud Gandalf for, you know, he always seemed like a smart guy. But for him to be able to explain to Frodo, most importantly, that it's the 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 mithril veins running through the mountain that was the the cause of all of like the the glory and the riches inside the mountain, and then he gives him the example of you know Bilbo was given a mithril shirt from Thorin, and that shirt it, it's just you know it's to us it's regular armor in terms of like size. But that is worth more than the entirety of, like, the city you came from. It's worth more than that. And it's just this thing, this big by this big, to kind of give him, like, a a sense of how prized Mithril was. And and a bit of a side note, because it's really not featured in the film at all. But, you know, in the History of Middle-Earth volumes, you know, you can see the different drafts that Tolkien goes through. And there's an interesting evolution uh, on the question of, well, is there still treasure in Moria? You know, Tolkien goes through diff- different iterations where initially Gandalf says, you know, conclusively, oh, there's no more treasure. It's all been carried off. You know, it's been plundered by orcs or or and there was another version where, oh, Sauron wanted the Mithril. So, you know, the orcs came in and plundered the Mithril and carried it all out. And ultimately, the version we get in the books is Gandalf doesn't really know. Um, he speculates that there are 
the deep strongholds of Moria still haven't been explored because it's too dangerous. So he, he speculates that there's still treasure there somewhere, but no one will never know because it's too dangerous to go down there. And it leaves it a little bit more vague, which is kind of where a lot of things, that's the, the progression of a lot of little lore questions you see in Lord of the Rings. Like Tolkien plays around with answers to those questions. And then kind of what you get in the books is oftentimes a little bit more vague because in reality, the characters don't always know everything. So you, you get Gandalf, who's about as wise as they come, but even he's just kind of speculating. So kind of an interesting progression there. But yeah, Mithril is is silver. It's true silver. So it says in the books that, you know, it's it can be worked and reworked and it still never loses its polish and it can be mixed with other metals and it makes things very strong and it's very light. So it's kind of just like this uber metal that uh, yeah. is, is good for everything. I don't want to waste any time before we get to this scene, which is like probably my favorite scene in the movie, I would say. And it is a scene that they they reordered really all of this dialogue about, you know, it's a pity that that Bilbo didn't kill him when he had the chance and Gandalf yes. saying talking about the importance of pity and all that. That it comes from really the shadow of the past, an early chapter in the Fellowship of the Rings. Basically, one of the first chapters when Gandalf comes back and tells Frodo about the danger he's in, about the significance of the ring, and it gives him a little bit of backstory and history. They obviously take that out and they move it into the middle of, of the story. So Frodo's already on his journey and now they're talking about Gollum and, and the significance of Bilbo's choice. And I think it was a wonderful choice to put it, to, to do that, to, to reorder it, because I think it would have been lost on the viewer. The introductory scenes would have been way too bloated if they tried to pack all that in there. They already did the prologue, which gave other backstory. We wouldn't care about Gollum yet. Like, we wouldn't know anything about him. Or, and we wouldn't have the, like, bandwidth to care if they tried to dump that all in the beginning. So they right. move it into this this middle moment where they've already been through dangers. You know, Frodo has, he's got some scrapes and bumps and bruises, and he more fully understands the the weight of the burden that he's taken on in going on this journey. Yeah, so I, I, I don't want to belabor the point too much. I just think this scene is beautiful. Gandalf eloquently lays out some of the most important themes of this novel as a whole. You know, the importance of, of pity. All the great characters, they, they take pity on, on lesser creatures, even wretched creatures like Gollum. How important that is. You know, and we see, of course, there's a lot of foresight there that the pity of Bilbo will rule the fates of many because, of course, it is only because Bilbo spared Gollum. And then Frodo, similarly in pity, takes Gollum under his protection that Gollum is alive and present at the end. And of course, Gollum succumbs to evil and tries to take back the ring. But nonetheless, it's this weird confluence of events where it's only through this, you know, seemingly small act of pity um, that the like the entire world is saved. And while it's a little backstory of Smeagol slash Gollum that Gandalf is giving Frodo, it's also serving as a warning. You know, he had a very different life before the power of the ring took him. Mm. Um, and yes. also the warning of, did he escape or did they let him go so that they could follow him here after us? There's danger still around. So, you know, while we're discussing this, we need to remember that we still need to get through you know, the minds of Moria and get to the other, like we, there's still, he's here now and he could be dangerous, but there's even more danger lurking behind potentially. Right. Not a major threat that we need to worry about right now. And, and you pointed out, yeah, that comment by Gandalf, you know, maybe he was set loose. That's another example of, that is sort of like a hidden little nugget that, that you only 
gleaned from the books, but like reading and rereading them and parsing things together and understanding the significance of that. And they just sort of, and Jackson throws it in there and sort of offers it up on a silver platter and makes that, you know, makes those connections for you and just does it really efficiently. So I, I really like that. Mm-hmm. And something I wanted to mention, I can't believe I haven't really brought this up more in the past, but I love Jackson's visual sort of cinematic style, the style of cinematography. He spends so much time on close-ups of people's faces, extra close-ups where it's like, you don't even get the entire face. It's like in their eyes or their mouth or whatever, you know? So like he does these close-ups. Yeah. The shot with Gollum, but even, you know, you get this shot with Gandalf and when he's talking to Frodo, he spends a good amount of time looking at Frodo's face while he's listening to Gandalf. Um, or even a close-up on Gandalf's face when he's talking. So I just love that style because it really highlights the actors and and you really get to see their acting and what they're putting on screen. Um, other directors don't always do that. Um, and so you lose some of the nuance of the performance. But you don't lose any nuances with with Jackson. You know, everything that the actor is putting out there, they're giving a lot they're given a lot of time to stretch out. And Jackson just zooms in on their face and on their performance. And, nope. and I love that. Even at the beginning of this, when they're first walking through Moria, um, Jackson takes the time to watch the fellowship walk by. You know, when Gandalf says, now I must endure the long dark of Moria. Let's start walking. You know, Aragorn walks by the camera and you see his face. Boromir walks by the camera and you see his yes. face. And, and there's a performance there. You can see the concern on their faces and what they're feeling and, um, Jackson, I love that Jackson takes his time and, uh, you know, maybe a, a stricter editor might, would have cut those things out for time. Cause these are long movies, especially the extended editions, but I love that they're in there. Yep. Let's take a look at, uh, the next scene, which I think is probably our final scene, but a great scene. Uh, that way. So in this scene, Gandalf finally remembers the right passage, and at least he smells the right passage. They pass through, and Gandalf brightens his staff, illuminating a massive hall with many pillars. Behold, the great realm the dwarf city of Dwarodel. There's an eye Gimli spies an open room and rushes forward until he sees a single tomb within the room's center. He wails with grief as Gandalf reads the runes, revealing that it is Balin's tomb. Here lies Balin, son of Hundin, lord of Moria. He is dead then. It's as I feared. So before we get into, you know, the big reveal of, of, you know, the massive hall, which is, I think, you know, the best part of this little sequence, uh, I just want to highlight the humor that is continuously interspersed in these scenes. Uh, the long dark of Moria, but we still get Pippin and Mary, these little, you know, peppers of, of hobbity humor, um, you know, while Gandalf was searching for, like, in his memory banks to figure out which way in the three passages to go, you know, Pippin was saying... Uh, Mary, yeah, I'm hungry. I'm hungry. Like, it's just so funny. Like, and it, it's, you know, and, and Jackson finds that perfect balance of putting in this this humor but not making it clownish, you know. And it's because the rest of the film is so earnest and mm-hmm. serious that the Hobbit humor comes off so well. It's like such a relief and it creates this, you know, great balance. And then it happens again, you know, Gandalf is saying, 
uh, Mary's like, oh, he's remembered. No, you know, follow your nose. And that's just kind of like some additional levity. Yeah. So I love the humor that's interspersed and in the, the way that they accomplish that. You know, Jackson's just got that tone just right. And I think a lot of people associate that balance with Middle Earth now. Like that is the, the Lord of the Rings tone that everybody likes. And Jackson kind of created that and found that nuanced balance and just hit it just right. Because it, it, it would have been so easy to get it wrong. So easy. But I think he just knocks that out of the park. So that takes us to really the big reveal and probably made your heart go a flutter uh, when they enter the, the massive cavernous halls of Casa Doom, yep. revealing you know the, the, the great ancient kingdom of the Dwaro Delph. And Howard Shore's music swells in. It really gives you goosebumps, I think, whether or not you're a dwarf fan. And I think it's, this is a wonderful scene because this is really the only and the first, exa- the first and only example in this film um, where we see an ancient kingdom. You know, we've seen Rivendell, which is a currently populated and thriving Elvish community, an Elvish kingdom. But here we have an ancient kingdom. And part of the wonder and joy of Lord of the Rings in general is the notion that it's, you know, we're in this fantastical realm and that there are ancient kingdoms right under our feet and literally under our feet here with with Moria. Right. Um, And so this is the first time we get to see, man, this world is populated with ancient kingdoms beyond our imaginings. And, uh, it kind of opens up the world, I think, a lot for for the viewer. And it's great that it is a dwarven kingdom that does that work. It's very unique in that when, when like, if you were, like, you can't imagine in our time right now, like, what an ancient kingdom would look like. Because you'll immediately think, like, way back in the past to a time where, like, the world was maybe less populated. Here in Middle Earth, you have an ancient kingdom that is massive. And even though it is ancient... It's still pretty, I mean, they had to say, you know, speak friend and enter, but it's accessible. It wasn't like so way out of the way and like you should never be able to get there. You could. There were just dangers involved with getting there. And then when they get down there, that shot where he like illuminates the room a little bit more and you see even like Boromir is kind of taken aback by like how massive this place is. And this place is inside of Casa Doom. Like we already thought it was big. They got this whole massive city down here, and it looks like these like pillars and columns just go for forever, like there's no end to it. It's just the size and scope of that place is magnificent. Yeah, absolutely. Although, one thing I always think of when I see that room, I'm like, this isn't functional space. Can't use this space for anything. Roof's too high. Too many columns. You know? All I can think of is that there used to be like like side street traders down there that would line up with their carts for whatever reason, have like snacks or something for people to come by after they get done mining and uh-huh. you know, they pick it up and they throw a coin down or whatever. Like, no, you're a hundred percent right. It's way too high for it to really be used for anything that I can like wrap my brain around. But what a great shot that is. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's still like, you, you don't really think about that when you look at it, all you see and feel is like, wow, this is amazing. And, you know, juxtapose that, the Dwarven Kingdom of Casa Doom with the Kingdom of Eregion, right? Which was a contemporary in the Second Age, but it is now gone. It is, you know, ground to dust. It didn't survive the passage of time. Um, you know, and they see that in the books, Legolas talks about how he can hear the stones, you know, echoing, um, you know, a lament that the elves were once there, but are no longer there. And uh, there are ruins under their feet, but they're not really visible. They're true ruins, the way that like we would have ruins in our world, you know, like maybe you see a, a, a leftover column or something, but 
there's no buildings for you to walk inside of. Compare that to Casa Doom, which is still standing. It, yes, it is decaying and, and all that. It is dark and it's not lit up because no, it's not populated. But the pillars are still there. The massive halls and caverns are still there. They have stood still the test has of that time. foundation. Yeah. So dwarves know how to build things to last. And then movie Gimli gets that unfortunate confirmation during this scene. You know, he had feared maybe something was wrong with Balin, but now he gets to run into the, the chamber area and it gets confirmed for him that his worst fears, yes, he's dead. Yeah, and it's... I alluded to this earlier that this is a, another slight change in the way that they characterize Gimli. In the books, the way he reacts is much more somber he is he's very distraught, but he doesn't like cry or, or wail or anything. He basically just he kneels in silence. He pulls his hood over his head and just sits there in silence. And um, they actually have to drag him away from the tomb, even like I, th- I think even when the fighting starts. In the book, yeah, because he's just so overcome with grief and the way he expresses his grief is is uh, is very different from what we have here, which is like kind of a more conventional expression of grief. It's like wailing and crying and sadness. Yeah. And uh, it still works. It's it it still works like it's, you know, it's an emotive scene, um, but it is a a little bit different. Yeah, I think it works, though, in the in the story that they're telling on screen in this movie. Again, it's one of those things where based on how he's reacting physically and audibly, it doesn't matter if you've read the books or not. Based on like what we had just seen during this recording, they've built it up for him to be like excited to see Balin. And now he's getting the heartbreaking news that he's he's not here anymore. And it's yeah. like that pain, that anguish, that hurt that he's feeling. Like, he broke rank and ran away from the group to come look at this. And, and uh, again, it's confirmed for him now. And imagine how awful this experience must be for Gimli. I mean, he's going through the mines and just seeing dwarf corpses everywhere. Everywhere. You know? And, uh, uh, you know, seeing corpses is going to be hard on anyone, but he's looking at people that could be his cousin or his friend, you know, people that he knew, people who were a part of his close community. And while they're not elves who live for forever, dwarves live for a really long time. Right. So, you know, it's within reason that he would know some of these people. Well, after this scene, the action really gets going, but we're going to save that for next time. Will, Varking, thank you so much for joining the pod today. I really had a good time. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm appreciative big time that you have invited me on. I wish, you know, Jen could have been here. She ducked me when uh, I invited y'all on to ours. <laughs> and then when I get invited to yours, she's still not here. I don't know if it's like a me thing or a her thing, you know. She could blame it on other things, but I'm I'm feeling a little bit of a cold shoulder. <laughs> I don't know if she's more of an elf girl or what, but I apologize for anything I've done to offend her. But I appreciate you having me on, and uh, it, it was really fun, and I look forward to discussing more Lord of the Rings with you in the future. Yeah, yeah, I can't wait for that. Jen definitely is an elf girl, so the feud is real. We're, we're, I'm announcing it here, uh, Varking versus Jen. Maybe we'll just have a showdown on a future yeah. episode. I'm, I'm, I'm ready for it. Well, to our listeners, if you like what we're doing here, please do uh, like and subscribe. And uh, I, I see there, there are more and more of you listening every week, and I'm so thankful that you are. And so if you could do us a favor, we'd appreciate it if you would all just go over to Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. Um, a written review and a rating that really makes a huge difference, you know, boosts us in the algorithm or whatever those uh, techie nerds do to 
decide which uh, podcasts are worth promoting. Um, it gets us up there in the rankings and helps others to find us. So if you like what we're doing, please do help us out by uh, leaving us a rating and a review. Um, next time, we'll be doing some more Rings of Power in our future episodes. Uh, and then we'll be joined by some additional great guests to get into the action with the Cave Troll in our next Jackson episode. So, Barking, thanks again. May the hair on your toes never fall out. Later, everybody. All right. So before you actually go, uh, I want to do a little Great Haven segment with you. Um, and I have some great news. I have some great news. It just so happens that, you know, Gimli, who we all know, near the end of his life, he sailed off to Valinor with Legolas. Mm-hmm. Weird choice. He was the lord of the glittering caves. And right. He, why he, even leave? Why leave? Especially to go with an elf, to be among more elves. Yep. I don't, I don't understand it. Cop movie. Right. Does, doesn't make any sense. Fortunately, he saw the error of his ways. He, he's come back. And actually, he got in touch with me. I don't know why he got in touch with me and not you, seeing as your distant relatives. But I was busy. That, that must have been. Your phone was on silent. You had your ringer yeah. off. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, he's, he's taken up lordship at the Glittering Caves again. And he's realized, you know what? I need an heir. So he's trying to find himself a little, a little dwarven princess honey. Mm-hmm. I suggested that he get on a little dating app. You know, that's, that's the way people do it these days. That's the, the easiest way to find other dwarves. You know, it's a big world. Get on a dating app. But he's not quite with the time, so he asked for my help in setting up his profile. Now, mm-hmm. I'm not a dwarf, so I don't know what appeals to other dwarves. I was hoping you could help us out in creating Ghibli's Dwarf Harmony, mm-hmm. you know, matchdwarf.com. Yeah. Plentyofdwarves.com. Yeah. Plenty of dwarves. That's it. I, I forgot what it was. But you know, you, you've been on that site, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, I've spent a lot of time on there before <laughs> I met my girlfriend. So, um, you know, to set up a pri- profile, they have a few few prompts here. So I'm hoping you can help me out. What do you think Gimli's answers to these prompts would be? Okay. okay? Mm-hmm. You ready? So uh, first, other than appearance, what's the first thing people notice about you? Mm, smell. <laughs> smell. A- a- any specific smell? Is this a is this a a musk? Is it a red meat off the bone? No, it, it is it is a high quality musk of well, you know sweat is, is the base of any preferred odor. Uh huh. Uh-huh. And and then uh, it's leather. It's sweat and it's leather because all that skin every time Gimli moves underneath his you know. Like usually it's like a cuirass or whatever, you know, uh-huh. underneath his armor. That's going to cause a lot of heat, a lot of friction, a lot of sweat. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm sure you've heard, but many dwarves believe that the dwarf women's are closely resembling them. They they would like that same smell. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But for him, like that is what you're going to get. It's like, it's not a goat cheese, but <laughs> it's like this. It, again, it's like leathery sweat. It's, it's like a, you ever gone out in the rain with your shoes on? Sure. And, and then you came back and maybe you were barefoot in them for whatever reason. Uh, that, that like two days later, that's uh, what we're going for here. All right. Wet shoes and bare feet two days after being in the rain. Yeah. It's going to scare away the elves, but it's going to bring in the dwarven honeys. I guess that's part of the appeal that it scares away, scares mm-hmm. away the elves, right? Yeah. yeah. All right. All right. See, I'm so glad I asked you. I never would have <laughs> thought about that particular musk. Yeah. All right. Next question. What are your three best life skills? Well, conversation, 
for one. I, I think you've you've heard of how great he talks with Legolas. You know, you don't get that way by not being able to communicate. I mean, that's probably the better term for what we were going for here, not conversating, but communicating. Um, if you're going to have problems or whatever, you're going to be able to talk them through with Big Gim. It's not going to be a problem. You know, that that's one. Okay, now two. Obviously, it, it's when you talk about dwarves, and he's talking about that dwarven hospitality. He's a very welcoming lad. If you're worried about bringing the parents over, bringing and meeting the in-laws, how's he going to do around the family, the siblings, whatever? You don't have to worry about that dwarven hospitality. That he, he's good with the parents. He's good with the parents. Good with everybody. You know, he's good in every hood. This is Gimli we're talking about here. And then, uh, lastly, and this one is going to be a little bit controversial. But Gimli's not afraid to spend on you, girl. He's willing to Ooh. give you that silver, that gold, that mithril, whatever you need. He knows the guy who got that, and he can afford it, because he's the lord of not, not the dim caves, but the glittering caves. Well, and Galadriel did say that his, like, his life would run with gold, but over him gold would have no dominion or something like that. So he's got all the gold, but he spends it freely. Yep. Although... I think his obsession with Gladriel might, you know, cause a little bit of tension with uh, any dwarven honey that he comes just across. Just a couple strands. <laughs> just, just a couple strands. Set in <laughs> imperishable crystal that he keeps on his person at all times. Yeah. Let me go ask my girlfriend to be cool if I had another woman's, like, three strands of hair here. Um, yeah, you know, but... it, don't worry about it. It's going to go over well. Next question. What's the most important thing you're looking for in another person? Oh, a beard. 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 Yep. No beard. It's kind of weird. You got to have a beard to be able to match if you want to be a good catch. You know. Nice. <laughs> nice. That's what we say in the mines. I would see. I would think that his most important quality is uh, that they that the dwarf girlfriend allow him to call them Gladril. Uh, I just you know maybe that would. Well, see if, if you, this is going to be on my profile, right? So this this would be not something you put out there. That is okay. like right a text on day number two. Right, right. That's after you've hooked them, you know, gotten them to mm-hmm. fall for you. Then you spring the... Uh... <laughs> yeah, it's like you throw out the bait, you get them in, and right before you take them off the hook, you say, by the way. Right, by the way. Have you heard of this little last name, Galadriel? And then if she has, she's going to understand because Galadriel, look at her. That's right. That's true. That's true. Three things you can't live without. Oh, I... I... I wanted to go right away to silver, golden mithril, but we're not gonna, we're not gonna do that. Okay, one my axes, because gotta have the axes. Gotta be able to defend home. That's number one. If you can't defend home, you're probably gonna be alone. That's just like a dwarven, you know, the thing we have in our society here. Uh, number two, you know, some people use the. Um, uh, I'm drawing a blank on what they're called right now, but it's like where you would craft all of your items. Like a smithy, a forge? Yeah. Well, we're going to use ours to cook. Because oh, okay. You, you got to stay sturdy and stout to be able Gimli's to... Gimli's a little Anthony Bourdain, huh? Right. Yeah. Yeah. You got to spoil them in that way. Um, and then the, the third thing that I can't live without is lesser, not as noble dwarves. Because anytime she is upset or she wants to leave, then you can be like, look at him, honey. You want to be with that? And then she's going to forgive you. She's going to get over it and think, you know what? 
I'm okay with, you know, some of Gimli's flaws, what's going on. So, like, his friends, he's not going to get rid of his posse. He's going to keep those fools around. Not Bala, though. So he he needs someone for comparison purposes. Yeah, yeah. Plus, she's going to have some of her friends. And you don't you don't want really to get true. bothered with that. You've got to be able to... Everybody has their role in the group. You need a wingman, right, to, to yeah. help up with a woman. Yeah. Got to right, have a wing balance. dwarf. Okay. <laughs> All right, last one. Mm-hmm. How do you typically spend your leisure time? Oof. So maybe you haven't heard the tales, but uh, sometimes I like to go out and just meet in this like a like a big field, oh. and there's a lot of people around. You're thinking like, oh, is this a rave? Is this a party? What's going on? Is this prom night? It's kind of like a mix of all those. You know what it is? It's me being a total badass in the battlefield. <laughs> and whatever an elf says, if they say 31, I got 32. They say 41, I got 42. If it twitches, the axe goes in, and that's my kill. That is what I do. That's how I get my fill. I'm pretty sure with a profile like that, Gimli will have no problem. He'll be rolling in it pretty soon. The algorithm is going to be very confused as to why nobody has swiped no. Right, right. <laughs> Just the most desirable dwarf of all time. Of all time. It's, it, they're going to have to kick him off and send him to another app because they're going to think this is some like perfect bot. Right, 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 right. No dwarf could possibly be so desirable. No, I mean... None but Gimli and yourself. I'm going to put it out there. The yeah. perfect guest. Well, I'm already taken, guest. so... <laughs> all right, we'll, we'll, we'll keep your uh, Dwarfs R Us profile on the download. Thank you so much. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Thanks, man.